Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today we're talking about prostate cancer, the second leading cause of cancer death among men in this country. My name is Robert Sklamberg. I'm 66 years old. About three years ago, I uh, learned through an MRI that clinically significant prostate cancer was likely present. And that was confirmed two months later in a a biopsy. And uh, I was in shock. It really took me into a, a, a dark place. And I was a zombie for some months from that point on. And I met with a urologic oncologist after my biopsy. And I recall him telling me that you have a little bit of cancer, that it's favorable intermediate risk, basically trying to tell me it could be a lot worse. But the options were surgery. And then he ran through the radiation option with me as well. And I asked if it would be a good idea for me to get a second opinion from a radiation oncologist. And he thought that would be a good idea. He did give, you know, a quick rundown of what the side effects, urinary, uh, sexual, rectal, etc., are with both uh, treatment modalities. There are cure rates, which as I recall, were about the same, somewhere 90%, maybe a little over. I did ask him about active surveillance because I had, I'd already read some and I saw an article on active surveillance. And he said that he would not recommend active surveillance in my case because I was a favorable intermediate risk. That's only for low-risk patients. He would not agree with that. And he acknowledged there are no good choices here. I remember him saying that. And I saw the radiation oncologist some weeks after that. And he made it clear radiation would be a good solution for me. But surgery is equally curative. And I remember him saying something like, you can't make a bad choice. Either one would cure your cancer, but there will be side effects. And I started talking to men who had been through this, whose quality of life had been severely impacted by their radical prostatectomy, you know, who are in diapers or pads since and who are unable, who've never been able to achieve erection since. And even though I was terrified, I, I don't know if I know why I pressed on and wanted to get a second opinion. So I met with a new urologic oncologist and he decided before making any treatment decisions that he wanted to do additional testing genetic testing, genomic testing, it was clear that he wanted additional evidence from additional sources before determining whether, in his judgment, I would qualify as a candidate for surveillance. So on that basis, he believed it was safe for me to begin his surveillance program with the tightest intervals of surveillance, meaning three-month checkups with him. On the one hand, I felt relieved. On the other hand, uncertain and scared. Half of the men 
on active surveillance leave surveillance not because their diseases progress but because of the anxiety and it is living with the knowledge of cancer in your body and even though i believe i'm probably going to be okay there isn't a day that i'm not somewhat scared and it's sort of like the beast in aliens you're taking a risk you're playing russian roulette with cancer so there's a lot of anxiety in surveillance there's no question not to mention you are in a perpetual state of testing and awaiting test results which is nerve-wracking there are annual biopsies i've recently had my third and prostate biopsies are brutal so it's no picnic Surveillance is just one of three or four options on my treatment menu. My doctor would recommend any of them. He is not recommending that I be on surveillance. That is my decision. But ultimately, if you find the right doctor and they are all about the science and they do state-of-the-art testing that my doctor is doing, continuing to do, that makes him more comfortable in my choice, which makes me more comfortable with my choice. Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. There's still a lot of questions about diagnosis and treatment for prostate cancer, but recent studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine and in NEJM Evidence are helping to give doctors and their patients more clarity on how to handle this disease. I'm joined now by Dr. Oladapu Yeku. He's a medical oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate editor at the journal NEJM Evidence. So Dr. Yeku, tell us about the PROTECT study. It was a longitudinal study. Patients were followed for 15 years. How did this trial work? So between 1999 and 2009, a little over 82,000 men were screened with PSA tests, and 2,600 or so patients had prostate cancer. Once these patients were diagnosed with prostate cancer, they were randomized into three arms. In the first arm, these patients with low-grade or intermediate-risk prostate cancer were randomized to undergo active monitoring, which means they were followed by their doctor very regularly, PSA checks, lab work, etc. Another arm were patients who underwent surgery, which is in this case a prostatectomy, and in the third arm, patients underwent radiation therapy treatment. And then patients in all these three arms were followed longitudinally, both for clinical outcomes and also for patient-reported clinical measures for quality of life. So why did the New England Journal of Medicine publish this study, and what are the major takeaways? The major takeaways from this study, again, a benefit that can only be seen because of the relatively long follow-up is that patients who were in the active surveillance arm didn't do worse. And that has always been the hypothesis in the community that electing to do active surveillance was somehow leaving the opportunity or the potential for a cure on the table if you did not proceed with surgery or with radiation therapy. So to find that, at least with the primary endpoint, which is death from prostate cancer, to find that this was not different among all the three arms, it was a monumental finding. 
And I think just as important was the fact that nearly 25% of the patients in the active surveillance arm did not require any therapy at all. So they were followed and nothing happened. They just lived out their lives. There's not been any study to date that has been able to show this to this extent that it really has helped us answer a question that has really been at the forefront of management of early prostate cancer. What questions did this study not answer? I think there are two very important caveats to this particular study. And the first is that the majority of patients on this study were patients with low and intermediate risk prostate cancer. So patients with high-risk prostate cancer were not a part of this. And I would be remiss to mention that if we go back and look at the original demographics for the patients in PROTECT, patients who are Black were underrepresented, as well as other different groups. So outside of those two major caveats, I would say, in this group of patients, the ones that are reflective of the ones studied in, in PROTECT, which are patients with mostly low to intermediate risk prostate cancer who are not necessarily Black or African-American, Hispanic, Asian. In those groups of patients, we can confidently say that after 15 years, whether you undergo active surveillance or prostatectomy or any kind of radical treatment option, your risk of dying from prostate cancer will be the same. I think the unanswered questions remain What about patients who are not white or Caucasian? And we have missed, as a community, we've missed this 15-year window to have answered this question for those groups of patients. And it would be difficult to extrapolate the results of this study to those particular groups because they were not studied as part of PROTECT. So did you think about your own health after reading these findings? Absolutely. It was the first thing I thought about. And and the second thing I thought about, having looked at the demographics of the patients represented, was how this data really couldn't apply to me. And making a decision based on this data might or might not give the same results. So, you know, it profoundly affected me in that way. And I'm sure physicians or the practitioners of color and their patients will have to navigate the same tricky waters to say, hey, here's the data. It was a long study, a long longitudinal study. Patients were randomized. It was very high quality. And the results showed that all three arms, active surveillance, prostatectomy or surgery or radiation, all had similar outcomes, but with different side effect burdens. And I don't know if this would apply to me. So if I were having the same conversation with my physician, even as somebody who has read the data, it would still be a risk or a gamble to use this data to make a personal decision for myself or for my patients who might be patients of color. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Oladapu Yeku is a medical oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate editor at the journal NEJM Evidence. I'm now going to turn to Dr. Oliver Sarter. He's a professor of medicine, urology, and radiology at the Mayo Clinic. And he wrote the editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine that accompanied the PROTECT trial results, called Localized Prostate Cancer, Then and Now. Dr. Sarter, why don't we start by understanding what exactly we learned from this study? I think what we learned is that even after very prolonged follow-up, 
a significant number of men with low-class prostate cancer did not appear to benefit from treatment, that radical prostatectomy and radiation plus hormones were not substantially different when it came for survival, even after 15 years. And I think that's an important message, that a lot of people don't really need to be treated for prostate cancer, that they could undergo surveillance. That's important. And critics of this study say that in many ways it's outdated. I mean, patients were followed starting in 1999 when diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer was very different. What do you say to that? How do we understand that? Well, I think that's a fair criticism, and many changes have occurred. But regardless, in America today, many patients are faced with these three basic choices. Do you want to have a radical prostatectomy? Do you want to have radiation? Or do you want to undergo surveillance? And the ability to inform men of these long-term results, I think, is important. Now, what's critical is to understand the population that was actually randomized into the trial. But the bottom line is, for those with predominantly low risk or what we call favorable intermediate risk, I think the outcomes for surveillance were really quite good. So what questions did this study raise? You know, Rachel, if you look at the data, the predominant patient in the study was a low-risk patient, and it underscores that surveillance is fine. However, and this is very important, however, if you look at the number of patients with higher-risk disease, these patients were hardly present in the study. There were only 6% of the men who had a grade group three or higher. Let me back up and divide localized prostate cancer into three broad categories, low, intermediate, and high risk. Now, the number of high risk patients in this study was vanishingly small. And you cannot conclude from this study that high risk patients ought to be watched because that's simply not the case. Now, the low-risk patients we've been watching for years. On the other hand, the intermediate is a little more complicated, because some of these are going to be a little higher risk, some of these are a little lower risk. Most of these patients were in this favorable intermediate category. And you know what? Watching those patients, Rachel, is just fine. But you need to watch them carefully. You can't just say, bye-bye, see you in 10 years. You have to have follow-up, and you have to have a plan to follow them forward. Can you talk about how you deal with these intermediate patients in your own practice? So, Rachel, if a man comes in to me and they have a PSA somewhere in the range of five, I do an examination and I try to make sure that there's no lumpy, bumpy prostate that would get me alarmed. And then if that is just fine... I get a prostate MRI. And interestingly, we can categorize those MRI findings on a one through five scale, with five being bad and one being really good. And for the ones and twos on that scale, we just watch the patient. We don't even do a biopsy. If they are three, four, or five on this MRI scale, we typically do a biopsy and we target the area that is suspicious. Now, think for a second about breast cancer. You get a mammogram, they see something, they put a needle in the spot, and they try to find out what it is. Well, for prostate, many, many years, we've just been poking holes all over the prostate, 
without any image guidance. But today, we do have image guidance, and that's important. And now we have genomic markers that we can look at the characteristics of the cancer beyond that which we understand from the light microscope. We've been looking at cancers under a light microscope for the last century, but there's newer technology that we can bring to bear on the problem and that allows us to personalize better for the patient and give advice to the patient more about their cancer, not just these broad categories. So those are a couple of very important factors, the MRI, the genomics, and then this ability to personalize and understand that active surveillance is a very viable option for many, many men. So tell us about your experience with surveillance. I came back to New Orleans after Katrina 15 years ago, and there was no surveillance program in New Orleans. So I put it together. And immediately, our clinics were bombarded with patients interested in surveillance as an option, and we evaluated them carefully. And of course, not everyone is appropriate for surveillance, but we put on literally hundreds of men on surveillance over these last 15 years. So we've been doing this for years, by the way. And using that approach, four to 500 patients under surveillance, I've only had one patient really fall through the cracks. Then about his eighth year of follow-up, he kind of skipped out for a bit. And he came back in and, oh my goodness, the cancer had already spread. But that is one out of 400. And the vast majority of patients under surveillance are going to be doing fine. Now, we have to move some on to therapy. That's inevitable. Some of these indolent cancers are not going to remain indolent forever. And when we move on to therapy, we use that radiation or radical prostatectomy like everybody else does. Although I must admit, we're now starting to use a little bit of what we call focal therapy and carefully selected patients. But the bottom line is, we still move patients on to therapy, but in a much more personalized and selective way. You need to stratify the patient into different risk categories and treat them appropriately for the type of cancer that they have. And not everybody has the same type of cancer. Personalize your recommendations. Your patients will appreciate it. NEJM Evidence published an accompanying survey reporting the symptoms from these men in the trial who experienced different symptoms from different treatment. How does understanding those symptoms relate to the PROTECT study, and what can we learn from understanding these quality of life issues when it comes to navigating treatment for this disease? Rachel, it's a very important component of the study, because when we're looking at cancer-related outcomes and survival, that's only part of the question. Most of the patients who come into me say, look, doc, you know, I'm healthy right now. I feel healthy. I'm not having any urinary issues. I'm not having any sexual issues. And the treatments, such as radical prostatectomy and radiation, are going to be potentially problematic. Now we can quantitate those risks over time using the data from this study, long-term follow-up. And I think it's very powerful. I will give the New England Journal evidence study to my patients, and I send them home with homework. And then they have to come back, and then we have 
a real meeting about decision-making about what we're going to do. But I don't like to do that on the first visit because people are often overwhelmed and not properly educated. The author of this study, of the PROTECT study, Dr. Freddie Hamdi, he says that there is a global indiscriminate use of PSA testing. Do these PROTECT findings help clarify the use of PSA and when it's appropriate and how to use it? I'll simply say that PSA, in my mind, is not particularly over or underutilized, but I think it's inappropriately understood. There are a lot of false positives with PSA. The majority of men who have an elevated PSA do not have cancer. And perhaps even the majority of men who have cancer don't need to be treated. And the 1990 ethos involved getting a PSA, doing a biopsy, and doing a radical prostatectomy. Well, guess what? That turned out to be wrong because many people were suffering the side effects of therapy and not deriving the benefit because these low-risk cancers never needed to be treated in the first place. So now we're really switching the paradigm, moving from a cancer detection test like PSA, but putting in important caveats. I get my own PSA. Why do I get my PSA? I get my PSA because I don't want to be diagnosed with advanced metastatic prostate cancer. I don't want to come into my physician with back pain as my first symptom. That is a fatal disease. Metastatic prostate cancer today is incurable. I don't want to be diagnosed with incurable disease, and the utilization of PSA can dramatically reduce that risk. And that's why I get my own PSA. But guess what? If it's elevated, I'm going to get that MRI. And if the MRI shows a lesion, I'm probably going to get it biopsied. But then I'll have time for a halt and a thoughtful process about how would I like to proceed. And surveillance may be an option. We heard from one of our editors at the journal NEJM Evidence, Dr. Olodapu Yaku. He says because there was such a small percentage of patients of African descent in the PROTECT trial that he himself and other black men shouldn't really follow these recommendations, even though they are two to three times more likely to die of prostate cancer. What do you make of this? And where do we go from here on that? First of all, Rachel, is controversial. We have published data on African-Americans that the outcome appears to be similar for those on surveillance. On the other hand, there are others that have published data that is contrary to that notion. I think that more research is justified, but I have a hard time telling my African-American patients that surveillance is not an option because the side effects of therapy are so real, and it doesn't seem fair that I'm going to withhold surveillance from a group of men who very well may benefit from it. So even though men of African descent were underrepresented in the study, from the UK, it doesn't necessarily color my thinking about how I'm going to manage African-American patients. And I think surveillance should be an option for those with low-risk disease. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Rachel. Glad to be here. That's Dr. Oliver Sarter. He's a professor of medicine, urology, and radiology at the Mayo Clinic 
And he wrote the editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine that accompanied the PROTECT trial results called Localized Prostate Cancer, Then and Now. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, the story of America's very first paramedics, an experiment in the black community of Pittsburgh at a time when it was the police that brought you to the emergency room. So if you can picture a police paddy wagon showing up at your home, two officers getting out, placing you in the back of that vehicle on a canvas cot, and both gentlemen getting up front. If something happened to you en route to the hospital, you either stop breathing or your heart stopped beating, you were worse off than you were when they came to your home to pick you up. So you take a group of individuals that nobody thought would amount to anything and you train them to provide the best medical care in the streets. We were the very first in the country to bring the emergency room to the person. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.